Movie Makers, you are in for a treat today because we have the great and amazing Catherine Trebek joining us on the podcast. Dr. Catherine Trebek is a writer, she's a political economist, and she's an advocate for economic systems change. In fact, she's one of the founders of the Global Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is doing incredible work with governments and businesses, communities all around the world. She talks to us today about what it actually takes to reorient our economy from one that is merely profit and growth driven to one that is really here to serve all of us and the planet that we live on and depend on. She speaks with such clarity, such warmth. I think she explains these ideas better than almost anyone I've ever heard. And really, it can feel like an overwhelming thing to even begin to get your head around. So she says, where do you start? If it's a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, you start in the corners. And she gives us the four corners of well-being economics in this conversation. I think it is so enlightening and essential for anyone who is interested in this work, whether you are a policymaker, politician, parent, or just concerned and engaged citizen. We are all thinking about money right now. We are all thinking about our economic lives, our security, our future, our planet, and what we can do to shift things in the right direction. I hope you love this conversation with Dr. Catherine Trebek. Welcome to the Remakers Podcast, and thank you so much for being here to help illuminate this whole field of well-being economics and what it actually is and isn't and what it looks like. I loved your book. Now, um, this is embarrassing for me, and luckily <laughs> we are not on video for the majority of the people in this conversation. The bookmarks, even my six-year-old, he's like, Mom, why have you written all over this book? So Catherine's book that she's co-authored with Jeremy Williams is called The Economics of Arrival Ideas for a Grown-Up Economy. And I just think it is such an invaluable handbook for anyone who is trying to really get their head around these big ideas. And I believe that you wrote it when you were kind of like policy wonk at Oxfam looking into all of these ideas. And I'm just curious if you can introduce us to this notion of arrival, like this is an, a word and an idea because you know, it's it's got this kind of friendly welcome mat feel to it. And I think it's so brilliant. Where did you first come up with it? So it's 100% Jeremy's idea. And, and Lily, thank you so much for inviting me to join you in this conversation. It's really wonderful to spend time talking talking with you. And thank you for enjoying the book. It really, it means a lot uh, to see all those notes and the little pages turned over. That's really, it's really special, actually. So yes, the idea of arrival is 100% Jeremy's. We The first time we met, and it sounds so sort of early 20th century. We were introduced <laughs> on, twi you know, on Twitter. And so we, I was living in Glasgow. He was living just outside London. And we we met, we were introduced by a mutual friend, met for a coffee in London. And at the time, as you've said, I was working for Oxfam. And I was also working on Ox, a lot of Oxfam's work facing the UK, not 100%, but a lot of that looking at just how 
the ideas of sort of international poverty reduction and, and social justice questions could apply to the UK. And of course, UK is a very, very rich country in GDP terms. And yet where I was living in Glasgow, there were parts of Glasgow just up the road from me where life expectancy was falling. And there were parts of Glasgow where life expectancy for men was recorded as about 54. And so I was carrying these sort of these puzzles around one financial wealth does not automatically mean everyone's going to have a good life. Questions mm-hmm. of distribution really, really matter and what we do with the wealth and how it's generated. And then also working in an organisation like Oxfam that was focused on global justice, I was really increasingly aware that given all the issues of climate breakdown and environmental breakdown and how they were undermining people's livelihoods around the world and you know the poorest uh, folks around the world were the ones who were getting hit hardest by the impacts of environmental breakdown. I was increasingly holding this sense that if Oxfam cared about global justice, it needed to take a good hard look at the economic models of you know the global north you know, the rich, industrialised, GDP-rich world. And so they they were the sort of ideas that were swirling around in my mind when I sat down for a coffee with Jeremy in this sort of cute little cafe on the south banks of of London. And and I sort of must have been sharing those ideas with him or those questions that I was wrestling with. And he he just said, you know what, GDP-rich countries need to recognise that they've arrived. And as someone who was living um, the other side of the world from the place I grew up in and where my family was. The, that idea of arrival and coming home is is it's really quite um, special to me and to a lot of people who travel and know that feeling of you've arrived in a place and what a what a lovely sort of freeing content, opportunity for contentment that 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 can be. And so I sort of that stopped me in my hit my tracks when he just said that term almost flippantly. And so as as we outline, I think in the in the forward uh, or the prologue, we need to write a, a blog about this. And and then we we never wrote the blog because we thought, oh, actually maybe it's a discussion paper. And we <laughs> never wrote the discussion paper because it became a book. And and there were two concepts. So a, arrival is in a way that an invitation, a sense, a possibility that in aggregate. Um, we can dare to ask, has the has the idea of development and economic growth, can we dare to ask often that forbidden question that does it have a destination? Uh, has it done its job? Have we arrived in the sense that countries like Australia or US or UK or France or Germany or Canada, have they got enough in aggregate? And if the answer to that question is yes, then that very much begs a second project, which we describe as making ourselves at home. So it's a, that duality, those two questions or those two projects are, are very, very important. So it's not just rivals saying, right, that's it, everything's sorted, because clearly, um, you know, as a Glasgow example and the life expectancy question proves, but also there's plenty of examples here in Australia Clearly, being a very, very wealthy country in and of itself is not doing um, doing the job for enough people. It's not translating to good lives, uh, fulfilled lives, satisfying lives. And as we know, it's also putting huge pressure on the planet. So the, the invitation is then to make ourselves at home um, with this wealth that we've got. And that requires sharing and cherishing that wealth uh, in a much better way than we've done to date. I love it so much. And the quote that you have from the author and journalist, um, Katrina Marcel, of the purpose of this journey could change. We could go from trying to own the world to trying to feel at home in it. And that's when you take off your shoes, prepare to stay a while. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. A, isn't a it? mindset shift. Uh, 
be. And what, I mean, of course, there are places, I really want to acknowledge there are places where home is not safe for people. But for most people, the idea of home is is really a a beautiful, profound concept um, where people are taken care of because of their needs, not because of what they contribute in a financial sense, where, you know, what's the first thing you do when you come home after being out on a long day at work? You know, you rip off your makeup, you put on your comfy shoes, you relax, you cook, you provide for people. Um, But also it still means you can improve so for example if you're going on a on a journey and you get to your the cottage you're staying in so you've arrived but you then might you'd make sure everyone has enough beds you'd make lunch for people but you might also think well maybe you know we can do a bit of energy insulation or energy efficiency in in this building so you can still keep improving it's not it's not status it's not or it's not go backwards it's actually it's just a completely different project that so often is is really you know a question we're not allowed to ask the idea is we just have to keep having more and more and grow and faster and faster and i think there's something potentially really freeing about able to say do you know what it's a time for a different a different task but it's i love that it's such an an inviting you know as you say it is an invitation both to arrive and then to explore what does it look like if we acknowledge that we have arrived as an aggregate as a country um to make ourselves at home and it's so different to the very um sort of more polarizing and often very negatively framed um degrowth and these things that people say with very earnest and well, you know, Mm -hmm. good intentions trying to basically say we need to rescale our economy to fit within our, you know, planetary boundaries. But it feels like, and I think what people are afraid of is like, we know we're being squeezed through the hourglass right now. Like, wow, anyone who's paying attention can feel that squeeze and can feel that, that we are, business as usual is no longer the norm and really no longer an option for a whole bunch of compounding crises. But is the world that we're going to pop out into one of scarcity or abundance? Is one of, you know, fragmentation and conflict or one of stitching together? And people like me feel so utopian and idealistic for going, oh no, it can all be a beautiful place and look at all of our beautiful tomorrows we can create. But I think to to even be bold enough to ask the question of, well, what are we aiming for here? Yeah, yeah. And like, is this how you also did this idea of arrival and making ourselves at home? Have you parlayed this into well-being economics as a sort of framework? Yeah, so really, really practically, the book came out just as the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is something I, I co-founded with a few other people uh, in around 2018. So, that, so they almost came, the book came out as Wellbeing Economy Alliance, we all, uh, for short, as that was starting, and so the term well-being economy started to get a lot of traction, much to our surprise, because to be uh-huh. honest, um, we all didn't start out to try to have an alternative term. I, I think of the well-being economy as a little bit like a picnic blanket term on which other concepts that envisage a more humane, more sustainable economy are welcome and to really sort of showcase one, that plurality of ideas, but also how they share a real common core sense that the economy mm-hmm needs to be in service of humanity rather than the other way around. And so we all was not, so the well-being economy idea was not intended to be an alternative or a synonym for these other concepts. It's more like an umbrella or a picnic blanket term underneath that. But of course, people then said, well, you have to define it. Uh, (laughs) And so 
there's a real tension, I think, around holding that inclusivity, but being precise enough to tell people what it's about. And and what what we all and and those of us in that sort of that broad system change movement, what what's emerged or what has has seemed to happen is that the term it's one, it's positive. Uh, so, so, and it's compelling and positive and optimistic in that way, but it's also a little bit more specific than terms like alternative economics or new economics, which, um, yes, we don't, we can't keep business as usual, as you said, for so many reasons, but just to have an alternative, what does that alternative look like? So the idea of having the adjective of well-being in front of the economy starts to say and starts to imply here's what the economy needs to be designed to deliver, uh, collective well-being for people and, and for planet. Um, so there's lots of ways, of, and we can get into this, this later, but in a way this sort of so I was talking about the economics of rival, and then because I was at Wheel, just started you know merging that into well-being economy. And then to me, it's an open question: Does the term well-being economy resonate, say, with Australian audiences? And in a way, I don't. I don't honestly, Lily, I don't give a stuff what the language is. I think <laughs> Call it whatever you want, people. Let's yeah, just start doing think, it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, having common language can help um, because it can help, you know, rally folks and folks know here's what we're talking about. But I think what really, really matters is that people find language that resonates with them and that they feel they can push in certain certain direction they can use to convince those who need convincing. Uh, and also, in a way, what utterly matters most is the content and that's about redesigning the economy so it's not extractive it's not rent seeking it's not putting mother nature and our living planet beyond what she can handle but it's actually respecting and cherishing um our, our ecosystem so you know the content is what really really matters to me but it, it has been surprising how the term well-being economy has really got traction uh in the european union the, their eighth environmental action plan has an official statement of saying we need to move towards a well-being economy. So that's an EU document saying we need a well-being economy. In Scotland, where I, I lived for the last almost two decades, they now have a minister, a cabinet secretary is a, the term they use for the well-being economy. That it's their official stated intention to build and create a well-being economy. Um, sometimes, depending on who's who in government has written that document, I think. They really get it. And then other times I think, ah, oh, they're just using that term on business as usual. So yeah. there's a tension there as well about how much do you sort of become the definition police? Uh <laughs> and, and how much do you or how much do you think, well, oh, this is interesting, the language is getting taken up, then we can backfill that with some of the really pithy, punchy content that needs to come. That's where I tend to fall. Like whenever people lament greenwashing or pink washing or well-being washing, I think if people are trying to adopt your frame, it's because they can tell that there's traction yeah. there. And it's a win in and of itself. That's a win in and of itself. And then you push to say, well, if you really want that, this is what it yeah. looks like. Um, but look, I think, you know, there's so many barriers to thinking this way. And even if, you know, if I became prime minister or treasurer, you know, you did tomorrow and we went That would off. be awesome. Let's do it. Please. Yeah. <laughs> um, to try to, you know, advance some of these ideas. You know, I would imagine we would feel very, very quickly this sort of fear of, you know, but business as usual is what we know and it's what's gotten us to this point. And, you know, we have we have this sort of belief in our um, the way that our economy works and the way that our advertising industry, you know, our government more is the answer. You know, that it's it's always about um, the, 
you know, we we need forever more. We can't pay for the services that we need without growth, the government will tell us. Even as an individual, you you know, if you earn more money this year than you did last year, you feel like you're on track and you're going to, you know, be able to have a good life and, and look after your family and not fall behind. Why is more not the solution? Like if, if if Andrew Lee were here or Jim Chalmers, I'm sure they would tell us we need to keep growing the economy because dot, 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 that's how you hippies get everything that you want. You know, why does more not solve inequality, not solve poverty, not solve, you know, even environmental degradation as people move into a higher end services, et cetera. So one our planet can't handle infinitely more and more and more. And scientists have been telling us this for over half a century. Uh, it was over 51 years ago where what became the Club of Rome um, issued the Limits to Growth Report, which all the analysis since has shown that their standard run model has been on track. So you just have to you know, think we're on a finite planet. We can't keep pushing beyond those boundaries. And so if folks are not familiar with the work of the Stockholm Resilience Centre around planetary boundaries, it's really worth looking at the nine planetary boundaries that they, they map out and really just understanding we cannot keep pushing. But also for more is not always a solution to the, the problem. And, and I want to say there's a real difference between who who needs more and who doesn't. So there's a lot of analysis around this idea of diminishing marginal returns that for if we keep using the same the country lens for countries that are not meeting the needs of their, their citizens uh more if it's used well that's a big caveat uh, if it's pro poor if it's um, invested in collective institutions like health systems education systems more can then lead to delivery and good progress on various aspects that we consider uh, a good thing. So infant mortality coming down, literacy rates going up, life expectancy rising. But you hit a stage of diminishing marginal returns for that. So essentially you start to get less bang for your buck. And this is using the nation state as a as a lens. So you have, for example, countries like Costa Rica that have higher life expectancy than the US and yet their GDP per capita is about you know much, much lower. Um, and you can have all sorts of other similar uh, comparisons along those lines. But the point being that, again, the job of growth seems to have done its job so it does matter at those early stages, but then the benefits start to tail off. But you can also imagine that how that plays out on an individual level as well. So for folks who are struggling to pay their bills or to struggling if they're couch surfing or even sleeping rough, an extra $100 or $200 is going to make an enormous amount of difference. And yet for people who have got plenty, uh, who may spend that on a round of drinks at the pub on a Friday night or on an extra pair of shoes that they don't really need, that extra $100, $200 is not going to make much of a difference. And so, again, you get a sense that the the benefit, the marginal return of more is different for different people and in different contexts. And yet our, the way so often we think about the economy, we're not even allowed to bring that analysis to it because it's just, as you've said, assumed that more is infinitely a good thing. And you pointed also at one of the arguments that's so often used for growth. Well, we need more, we need to grow the economy so then we can tax some of that back and then we can use that tax to fund services. And, and the challenge is, one, is that a lot of those services, not all of them, there's a lot of really important collective services, but a lot of them, if you take another look at what government spends money on, if you read through government spending announcements, a hell of a lot of them are driven by things like poverty, inequality, uh, 
environmental breakdown where, you know, we've seen in Australia the floods in recent years or the fires before them, all the repair and response and the emergency services over time and the building back, all of that is going to require spending. So in last year's October budget, for example, there are big numbers announced around uh, money for the health system to respond to extreme heat, uh, money for disaster response payments, uh, more money for community services because of the increased level of vulnerable clients, uh, money for more dialysis for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, um, more money for mental health treatment. All of that one can argue a lot of that is driven by the way we currently design our economic system. And hence that opens up the possibility to say, well, do you know what? Is that avoidable? If if we've got things right at source, would we need to be spending that money on those sorts of services? I mean, I'm we will need a government. We will need government services. We need collective services. But some of it we have to have another look at and say, are we actually spending to repair what we break? Yeah. And I love, so let's get into some of these categories because you brilliantly name these things that I think a lot of us have intuited, but we haven't necessarily ever had a label or vocabulary for. So in your book, that category that you were just talking about, you call it defensive expenditure, you know, where it's like we're creating problems with the left hand and then trying to solve them in a kind of scattered downstream way with a right. Um, but look, even in our own lives, like you talk about this thing called consolation goods. Yeah. Money that we're spending that really, what are consolation goods? Oh. So consolation goods comes from Sergei Latouche, who's a French sort of theorist of, of degrowth. And yeah, he talks about the consolation goods industry. And I mean, you know what? During during lockdown, I so saw in COVID, I was I was in Glasgow and I was working just like long, long hours. It was mainly on Zoom, exhausted, stressed, um, just you know, frustrated, you know, claustrophobic because of lockdown. I mean, really privileged because I could work at my kitchen table and retain my job and so on. But you know, long, long, stressy week. And I would get to the end of the week and what would be the first thing I'd do? I would open a bottle of red wine um, just to sort of oh, breathe out. Uh, people talk about retail therapy for a reason. Um, how And so Sergei Latouche is pointing at that of how people are, you know, ha having to console themselves for their stress or there's this lovely term, of, you know, their alienation, their sense that they're alienated from each other or from nature and they're consoling themselves through, you know, consumer goods. Um, and, and advertisers play on that, of course. You know, advertisers give us that sense, well, you deserve this spa weekend or you deserve this manicure um, or you deserve, you know, this, you know, bottle of wine as, as I'm, I'm guilty of. And, yeah, and that's you said like, you waited to the end of the week for that bottle of wine. I was like, oh, mental note, always. you're supposed to wait to the end of the week. <laughs> Not all. And, and, you know, for, you know, it was okay, but you see that that can become a very dangerous situation for folks. And I often say people are reaching for coping mechanisms at the pillbox or at the ballot box, you know, through populist politics as well. Um, and then that on the macro sense, you talked about the, the use of term defensive expenditure, which is a term that comes from ecological economics, just really naming how much is spent responding to how we've treated the environment and the cost of repairing, uh, even regenerating. And, uh, you know, the concept of sort of, you know, regenerative um, agriculture, for example, just shows how much damage we've done to done to our natural lands, our waterways, our, our soil systems and so on. And then in social policy, there's an equivalent term of failure demand. 
Yes, I was just going to ask you about yeah. that one. So it's sort of these are all the sort of same sort of thing, speaking to social spending or speaking to environmental spending or spe- speaking to personal um, spending. And failure demand actually comes from management literature from a guy called John Seddon. But in Scotland, about 10 years ago, there was a big commission into the future of public services in Scotland. And they they picked up this term and they estimated very, very conservatively, that for local government, about half of what they were spending, about 40% of what they spent, they estimated was due to downstream remedial spending because of the costs of poverty, uh, remedial education, some of the accident and emergency uh, services at hospitals, a lot of the criminal justice system. I mean, you could uh, one statistic that we quote in the book is the extent in the US about five million people working in guard labour. There's been an you know so essentially security guards or working in munitions factories or those sorts of jobs basically jobs created because we're scared of each other. And there's been an update to that research and it says that in some US cities, there are more people spent working in guard labour than there are teachers, um, which, which no. is just staggering, oh, isn't that's it? that's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, isn't that staggering of, of just what, where society's got to and then that downstream Band-Aid response to it is almost like the best we can hope for. Um, and you see that in, in government announcements. So often we're celebrating, we're going to open more hospital wings or we're going to announce all these sort of, you know, in the UK they're talking about, well, how do we um, put these barriers over the Thames so with climate change and rising sea levels it won't flood London. And they're celebrating that and, you know, politicians have their, you know, photo taken as cutting the ribbon outside these things. And you just have to think, what could have been better? What could have been better would be maybe keeping people safe and healthy and protecting our planet. Hey, just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking... Well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I wanted to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website, australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. people working guard labor than as teachers it like something hasn't reached into my soul and grabbed my heart like that since I first heard about bulletproof backpacks for sale in U.S. stores and Target yeah yeah I mean talk about something that shouldn't exist that adds to GDP yep absolutely absolutely yeah (sighs) and there's so many examples of that so you know for anyone listening if you, you have this frame, once you start reading the news or seeing what's on sale, um, and we just see so many examples of it everywhere, of this downstream 
downstream spending celebrated as a win. And yet people and planet have been harmed. And also it then generates this idea that we need to grow the economy to get more money to pay for that stuff. Is that what you would call uneconomic growth? Like when we're growing the economy, but in stupid or harmful ways? Yes. Yeah. So this is, this is a term from Herman Daly, who's one of the sort of founding fathers of ecological economics who passed away last year. And he, it was a term he came up with. So he, I was talking earlier about diminishing marginal returns. I think Herman Daly would probably say, oh, that's a bit of a benign, you know, re- look at the reality to look at how much of what current economic growth is composed of failure demand or defensive expenditures. And so he was one of the chaps who created something called the Genuine Progress Indicator. And so this is a measure that takes gross domestic product, takes GDP, and in a way corrects it for the good and the bad. So it takes out things that are spending on defensive expenditure, like spending up, spending after um uh, car accidents or cleaning up after environmental disasters or even uh, plastic water bottles. Uh, he factors in inequality to a degree. But then he adds, they add in good things uh, like volunteering. Um, mm. and, and so, and what you can see in these analysis is that you've had GDP tracking up, per capita tracking up, relatively consistency over the last, over the last sort of half century or so. And then since the 70s, genuine progress has flatlined and then that takes us into a conversation around well, what sort of economic models have been have emerged since the late 70s uh, in countries like Australia and, and the US. Um, yeah, it's, re- it's really powerful work. So, yeah, uneconomic growth is this idea that actually, you, you know, you might celebrate all this economic growth but, you know, look under the, under the hood of that and actually see what it is. What are we spending money on? Some of it will be great. Some of it will be really important to spend money on and we absolutely should be cultivating more, say, community-owned renewables. Uh, we could, should be encouraging more worker-owned cooperatives, more public transport. All of that will have a positive contribution to economic growth. Um, but it, just having that bland analysis where it just says all growth is good, um, it's, I, it just feels it just feels it's had its time and now surely our society can have a more sophisticated conversation around what is it we want more of what do we want to encourage and nurture in our society how do we do that rather than just this sort of unilateral um, more of anything doesn't matter what it is or where it is (laughs) gets it because we've seen often the benefits of growth go to those at the very top surely we can have a more sophisticated conversation yeah Okay, so we want to start to replace this idea of just more is good always and forever. And, you know, as you say in the book, you can't keep growing the pie when the oven is only so big. You know, like we do have some constraints and we just need to share it better and appreciate, you know, what we do have better. So what are some of your favorite sort of approaches or solutions that can help us to to really make ourselves at home and divert some of the spending from just trying to clean up our mess to really actually helping to prevent harm in the first place and create more of the good things. So just a a moment on the, the, the oven. So in the past, you've, you've often even had politicians say, if we just grow the economy, if we grow the pie, we don't need to have a more difficult conversation about sharing it, which again, I think is a really dire indictment on lack of faith in humanity. Um, to have compassion and empathy and and a sense of solidarity with each other, and maybe it's a realistic understanding. But I think actually, when you when you speak to people, they have incredible sense of empathy and solidarity. And we've seen that there's so many examples of people taking care of each other and taking care of strangers as well, and showing compassion for strangers that 
I think I think society is more than capable of sharing better. And it's almost this assumption that society can't do it that says, well, we can't have that discussion about sharing the pie, therefore we just have to grow it. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that you, you, it's often held as an alternative to, to better distribution. So since writing the book, I've come up, I've sort of got my head around all the different plethora of changes that are needed to transform the economy, of which there are thousands Uh you know, how we do our tax systems, how we do business models, how we design cities and neighbourhoods, how we grow our food, how health is provided and secured and how um, we build our buildings, all like right through from the very, very local right up to the supranational. And so how I get my head around just that plethora of changes is by thinking of them as a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. And if you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you start with the corners, don't you? So I sort of, I sort of cluster them, not in not in really tight, strict buckets, but more in clusters of these, what I call the four Ps of the wellbeing economy. And these are purpose, prevention, pre-distribution and people power. And so purpose is around, well, what's our economy for? What are businesses for? Even what, what's the sort of social value that a different activity brings to society? So the sort of things you'd see in this corner of the business model would be really rethinking the role of the economy, not as a goal in its own right, but very deliberately positioning and designing the economy so it's in service of what people and planet need you might see things like multi-dimensional well-being frameworks that governments around the world are creating and starting to align policy making and budgeting too so in scotland for example they had something called the national performance framework uh there's discussions in australia to have a better richer measure of a suite of measures of progress which would be great really great starting point but also at the sort of micro level individual businesses that are saying we're not in business here just for a quick profit, an extractive profit, but we want to be in business to contribute to social and environmental um, returns. They're the sorts of things you'd see in that corner. The next one's around prevention, and that's what we've been talking about, essentially saying we can do better than just spending ton of money on failure demand and defensive expenditures. What we can also need to do, and I want don't want to denigrate uh, acute responses because acute needs are, are really... They're high and they're responding to them and helping people and planet survive and cope today and tomorrow is vital, but it's not good enough just to stay there. So we also have to raise our gaze. And as I'm often saying, channel your inner three-year-old. So, you you know, three-year-olds get to that <laughs> stage where they're always saying, why, why, why? <laughs> we need to be like that. We need to not just look at the symptoms and the crises we see affecting our communities and our planet but we need to ask why and why and why. Look upstream, see the connections, see how the economy is at the root of so many of those challenges and take action there. And so to give you an example, in the UK, a huge percentage of the welfare budget goes to people who are in work but who are not being paid enough. Yeah. That's a sign of yeah. yeah. Yep. Apparently at Walmart they actually help you fill in your welfare application with your job. Isn't that charming? Yeah, just so so a massive sign of failure in the labour market that government then steps in downstream to respond to. Australia, the government here apparently reduces economic inequality by about a third, which feels like a huge lift. Um, so that's a you know that's a response, but also we talk around you know beach cleanups and carbon capture, sequestration and storage. If we had a more renewable, more circular economy, we wouldn't need that downstream response. But also you think of all the sort of anti-anxiety treatments that GPs are doling out now. If we had people feeling a sense of control and purpose and dignity in their lives and in their work, 
we, we can guess and imagine, and we know because of the causal pathways around some of that mental health struggle that we know that that wouldn't we wouldn't need as much. So that's a sort of you know um, prevention corner. The next one's pre-distribution, and I mentioned the extent to which the Australian government reduces economic inequality. Pre-distribution is saying yes, that redistribution is important, but also let's ask the economy to do more of the heavy lifting. And so pre-distribution is about really designing market outcomes so they're more equal from the beginning. And so the sort of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle you'd see there would be things like worker cooperatives where you have workers you know, owning, owning the capital. The business is all about serving the needs of those members or a community around it, not making money for a remote shareholder, but also things like the community wealth building agenda would be in a really important part of that corner where you're essentially generating economic activity from the community up through things like local procurement, local ownership, local jobs, uh, controlling local financial flows rather than crossing your fingers and waiting for trickle down because we so often see it doesn't work. Um, but also making sure we understand the, the real cost of goods and services. Um, we don't just externalise environmental costs. So, you know, this pen, for example, what was the environmental impact of making and shipping and transporting this pen? Uh, does it include you know, the, does the price that this I paid for this pen, does that actually include the full environmental cost? Or was I seeing this as only costing a dollar? I thought it was cheap. I could buy it. And actually someone else is having to pay those environmental costs. And so you'd also see those sorts of things in, in that corner. And then the final corner of the jigsaw puzzle is people powered. So how do we make sure people feel in control at the forefront and feel a sense of agency around these shifts? Because we know these shifts are coming. But if if different groups are scared of that change and feeling a change will be done to them, they will hold on. And so we need to make sure that folks feel up for this and excited about it and supported in change. And so things like uh, deliberative democracy exercises, citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting, a lot of really beautiful just transition work that you know colleagues of ours are working on to really bring to the fore community visions of what transition and what a good transition could look like. They're the sort of things you'd see in that, that corner of the jigsaw puzzle. And the good news is is that there are different people around the world working on all different parts of those different pieces of that jigsaw puzzle. So there are people rolling up their sleeves and building these sorts of enterprises, these you know worker co-ops or uh, sustainable circular economy businesses. There's people working on just transition. There's people who are doing the number crunching to understand the full environmental costs. There's people working within government to have a broader suite of framework of measures and so on. So and all these people bring something to that jigsaw puzzle and we can just start to put in a it's in its place. Um, huge headwinds against it, though, but at least this is not a step into the unknown. Uh, I love it. And I, my goodness, like, I think that just even the conceptualizing of it, that yes, it is a big puzzle and it can feel overwhelming and where do we start? But that idea we've all done, like you start in the corners and these corners are brilliant. I mean, even when you were talking about the pen costing more, we've all had that experience of going to, or I think most of us have, of going to somewhere like a Kmart, mm -hmm. buying goods that are like weirdly cheap, too cheap. Yes. And you almost feel guilty about how cheap it is. And you kind of know that there's a cost that you're not yeah. paying. Someone else is paying. Someone else yeah. somewhere else is getting screwed. But I could see how that so easily becomes a fear campaign, right? You know, these latte sipping, you know, champagne socialists want to make your pens cost $20 mm -hmm. each. Um, and, and so if we don't have mechanisms that bring people with us and that 
more fairly distribute wealth and power from the get-go, um, that we'll, we'll just we'll be too afraid. We'll be too afraid to move forward. I love how you've gone there straight away that we need to support people to be able to deal with those price rises because so often you get this reaction, well, we can't have full cost accounting because then people on low incomes won't be able to afford those pens to run with that example. And yet that just shows we've got more work to do. I mean, if we, we can't not do the most tentative of positive environmental steps because folks are on such low incomes now they won't be able to afford it. What we need to do is also attend to the fact folks are on low incomes and address that um so it just shows there's a bigger a bigger challenge and a bigger puzzle to, to yeah. work on and that as you say different. people all over the world are, ta- are taking up their piece and looking yeah. at their sphere of influence their sphere of interest and what makes them passionate and they're going for it I loved examples from your book um from Portland Oregon as well as Israel where they're finding new ways to encourage companies to reduce the gaps between what they pay the CEO and what they pay the lowest worker can you tell us about that yeah so what what these jurisdictions have done is one they've taken I guess the evidence on how pernicious and harmful economic inequality can be and they've seen we don't want businesses working in in our jurisdiction in our country or in our state that have huge levels of economic inequality where the people at the top of the organization are paid in the sort of triple figures of what people in the lowest um, on the lowest ranks in that organization are paid. So they said, if you're going to do that, we're going to tax you. Uh, we're going to increase the tax that this company is going to pay. Um, and in Oregon, I think they start using that additional tax to invest in, in homeless services and so on. So it's just, it's a good example of saying, yeah, you can make decisions and yes, you can have, you don't, everyone doesn't need to earn the same but there's a limit to the, you know, the crazy inequality um, of, you know, in intra-company earnings inequalities, that ratio between the highest paid and the middle worker or, or the lowest paid. Uh, and, and yet this haven't seemingly led to a flood of companies moving out of Oregon and setting up shops somewhere else, which is the other fear tactic, right? Like we can't possibly tax, you know, corporates more because they'll just take their jobs with them and off will, you know, will be stuck. This is, this is such a, yeah, that is a scare campaign that you often hear, you can't increase taxes because people will move away. Well, most people and most, even most rich people or most companies, there's more to their decisions of where to invest and where to live than just the sort of, you know, minutiae of tax, tax rates. It's quality of life, which is related to inequality. It's other services, which also is related to the tax take, uh, how much government can, can invest. It's do their, you know, are there families and friends in those localities? You get one or two celebrities. So I think in France, um, Gerard Depardieu, you know, the- Oh, yes, actor. yes, he famously and got the shit for the French tax. He moved. Did he move to <laughs> Russia? Well, that, you know, I wonder how that's working out. Um, Great choice, Gerard, yeah. So, yeah, so you get these famous ones that are sort of eye-catching and everyone thinks, well, that's a trend. But the the analysis that's been done and actually t- the Tax Justice Network of the UK is just, um, if anyone's interested, jump on their website. They've just done some bit of a sort of fact sheet around some of these myths around taxes, wealth taxes and so on. Um, but also, I mean, what sort of society do we want? I don't, you know, I don't to be honest, I don't want to be neighbours or um you know, hang out at the markets or the, you know, the rugby with someone who is so focused on reducing their tax. Because I think tax is a beautiful thing. It's it's the price of citizenship. It's our collective contribution. And I love tax. I think tax is really important. And, and so for someone who is so um, focused on reducing their tax contribution to society, I'm like, off, off yeah. you go then. <laughs> yeah, I know. On your way to Russia. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. So 
Your last chapter in the book is called Steps for Arrival, which I love because, you know, I've been in activism and camping in a long time. We all understand that people hear all of these brilliant ideas and they, we all want to help make the world a better place. And most of us do. There's one or two guys that just want to minimize their tax. You, you know, but the barrier so often is, well, but God, how, how do I, how do we begin? And you've broken this down rather brilliantly on levels from everyone from global institutions, national governments, cities and local government, businesses and individuals. And it's these really tangible, like these are the steps that take us toward this concept that we're talking about. This is recognizing arrival. This is making ourselves at home. So I want to start big picture. And then I'm going to ask you about individuals, because obviously we're all individuals listening to this podcast. But first, if you if you could be prime minister for the day or have the ear of the prime minister to do whatever, you know, wave the wand and it will be done. Do you have like a top one to three, like what would you do first at the level of government to try to bring us closer to what you're talking about? So one, it's a really hard question because we need a plethora of changes. But I think if government was to take seriously this, what, what feminist economists, what ecological economists have been telling us for decades and what First Nations communities have been living for millennia, this idea that the economy is nested within society and the two are nested in within nature, you know, this sort of stuff Herman Daly were, you know, wrote about where he sort of drew the circle with the economy within the wider circles of society and the environment. So that's easy for me to sort of describe a nice picture to draw. If government takes that seriously, that's a profound reorientation of the approach to the economy. It means asking what can the economy do for education, for gender equality, for poverty reduction, for people's quality of life, rather than the other way around. So an example for Australia at the moment, big discussion on on women's equality, economic equality. And often I hear those arguments say, well, if we have more gender equality, that'll be good for the economy. Or you have the IMF saying, or the World Bank saying, we need to reduce poverty because it's a drag on economic growth. And what I'm describing here is flipping that on its head, saying, what can the economy do for gender equality? What can the poverty, the economy do for reducing poverty? So that, to me, that mindset shift would be one of the first things because that will then enable opening up a whole lot of other other conversations. And I'm I'm really excited about pro-social business models. So that's something I'd be I'd be keen to get in. What one I'd hate to be prime minister would be a horrible job. And I <laughs> huge admiration for people who do go into politics because it's hard graft. And so yeah, massively admire folks who do roll, put up their hand for those, those sorts of jobs. But I think really focusing on on what sort of businesses do we need in our economic ecosystem, if I can use that horribly geeky term, what sort of, um, is it community-owned businesses? Is it worker co-ops? Is it social enterprises? Is it economy for the common good companies? Is it community interest companies? Is it community land trusts? Uh, is it B Corps? All these different business models are saying, yeah, we need to be commercially viable and you know, financially viable, but they're not doing that just to make it quick money and extract it up to some remote shareholder. It's to do to bring about other other benefits. And I think government can do a lot to encourage and uh, incentivize and support those sorts of businesses, whether it's through 
reducing taxes, uh, encouraging more education at schools or from business advisors or economic development agencies to put these sorts of models on the table. And the other thing, and I would, you know, if you were to ask me tomorrow, I'd probably come up with a different suite, <laughs> Lily, because there's so much to be done. But the other thing is, I think, just to get really real about this state of the environmental crisis. Um, what you hear at the moment is there's something, you know, here's scientists say, here's what we need to do. And I think, as you say, anyone who's awake is seeing the impact in their news screens or down the street from them every day with the extent of environmental breakdown. So you have the scientists and the planet saying, here's what the change needed. And then you have the politicians saying, oh, but we can only go so far. And actually what's heartening to me is when you have a conversation with citizens, so really good examples through citizens' assemblies, so often everyday people come up with actions that are much bolder than what politicians give them credit for. And so I think we need those deliberative conversations. You need to take people with you and build that base of support, but don't underestimate people's readiness to understand the extent of change. So for me, it would be one, just get really honest about the extent of changes needed, but work with communities to build support and a sense of control over that change and take care of people's livelihoods, um, those who are going to be most disrupted. And also people who have been most shafted by the current system, how can they be at the forefront of, of the change that's coming? How can they get the first jobs in community-owned, you know, renewable uh, energy projects, for example? How, how can they get the first jobs in a worker co-op? How can they get the first job um, in, you know, public transport systems? Uh, and we're going to need, you know, plumbers and electricians and engineers. So all those folks working um, in, say, fossil fuel sectors, we're going to need them. Uh, so how do we bring them along? So, yeah, it's a lot for... No, well, you know what? It was a big question and you answered it brilliantly because you were able to kind of give me three frameworks or three boxes in which you could do, you know, such a shift, the mindset shift from how do we serve the economy to how does the economy serve us? How do we create and, and promote um, more pro-social business models? And then how do we take this environment thing seriously and actually bring people with us and, you know, empower people to, to be the change and to lead the change? And so on an individual level, for anyone who's listening to this and going, oh my God, right on, uh, you know, do you have things that you have changed in your own life or ways that you engage differently as a citizen or, you know, how, how can we begin to take some of this into our own individual lives, which I know is not always the most empowered or, you know, we talk big systemic change and then it's go buy a keep cup, you know, so like it can feel like there's this huge disconnect, but we are all individual listening. And so what's something that we might be able to do? And I think just to say, I think individual action is really important because one, it helps you feel proactive and part of the solution. So even if you feel it's small scale and small step and probably can be overwhelmed by what companies are doing, you still do it because then you feel positive and you feel you're still attentive and you feel you're part of a movement of other people who are making similar steps. And the more people who, you know, buy keep cups, uh, you know, the more people, will, you know, the more shops will stop stocking single-use coffee cups. So, the, you know, these things start to add up to new normal and towards a tipping point. So it's really important to keep taking those actions, but if, if for no other reason other than to feel that you're doing something positive. I'd say also everyone will have a different sphere of influence. They'll have different capacities. If, you know, folks are struggling on the breadline or they've got, 
three kids or caring responsibilities, there'll be different steps they're able to take than, say, someone like me who doesn't have kids who's got, I can take the time, say, to go out to the shop at um, our local rubbish tip where I can buy the desk that your the laptop's sitting on, the light that's sitting over my desk here that, you know, from, from this place called Green Shed and I can have time to take, you know, to shop for those sorts of things secondhand. I'm not under any illusion that if I was, you know, had massive caring responsibilities, I, I could do that. So you've got to figure out what's possible without making it a burden because we're still in the current paradigm. We're not yet in a wellbeing economy. I, the big thing I'd say to people is, as we said earlier, channel your inner three-year-old and <laughs> asking why. That and we can all do. Yeah, yeah. keep asking why and, and spark these conversations when you hear folks saying, well, of course, we need to grow the economy more and, yeah, we need to get the economy back to growth and just say, well, why? You know, what, what? What, what what will that do and has that really worked in the past or who gets the benefits of that growth because we see it so often it goes to those at the top um, and to also pe- get people to sort of really name what most matters to them and, and I'm really heartened by deliberative conversations that I've personally been part of through you know my work with Oxfam in the past but also work of others that I've read about and you see this again and again when people have a chance to sit down and reflect on what really matters to them, they don't say having the 10th motorcycle or (laughs) handbag or the biggest house on the street. They say it's dignity, sense of purpose. It's time with family and friends. It's having enough money and security of money and income. It's having good natural environment. And, and I think these show that this is, these needs, these fundamental human needs are, are innate to us as humans. And then the irony is we've got this economy that's not delivering enough of those for enough people. Um, so, yeah, just taking the time to sort of stop and reflect and maybe spark one or two conversations with your aunt or a taxi driver or the person you're standing next to on the footy pitch and just, you know, plant some seeds in other people's minds so these conversations ripple out. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That is so beautiful. But, Catherine, it's just been beyond a pleasure to get to have this conversation and I want everyone to read your book yesterday the oh. arrival ideas for a grown-up economy um I want people listening to this to share it if people want to find and follow you and more of your work where should they go so I've got a website it's terribly out of date because I'm so useless I'm putting stuff up there because it's hard work um I know that's a skill I definitely don't have but yeah the website <laughs> I'm there. the same I took my website down because it was oh. out of date so you still got <laughs> Uh, but there's a contact form there if anyone wants to chat. I'm on Twitter with all its problems. I know I say that through gritted teeth. Uh, but, yeah, it's sort of probably probably website and through Twitter and um, also through the sort of I'd encourage folk to get involved in the Wellbeing Economy Alliance too because it's a, it's a global collaboration of folks who are wanting to transform the economic system but also want to do so by working together. Um, so it's weall.org. And I'd really encourage folk to just, you know, you'll find friends and allies and collaborators and partners and people to inspire you and people that you might be able to support or share advice with. And it's a really beautiful, diverse group of folks there. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Trebek. We will link to all of those things. It has been a delight. It has been informative. And I just wish you nothing but the best in all that you are doing and all of these ideas that you are helping us to understand so clearly. Oh, thank you so much, Lily. It's been really fun to chat to you. I wish we could keep chatting further, but maybe another time. Definitely.
In the depths of the Great Depression, the great economist John Maynard Keynes foresaw a time when mere subsistence would not be, quote, the permanent problem of the human race. He wrote about it in a famous essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, talking about the time when the struggle for mere subsistence would be solved and societies could then devote themselves to the challenge of living well. And the challenge of that switch was something that he could foresee even then. So thank goodness we have leaders like Catherine and as she says, people around the world doing our part to do the lift and all of the different pieces of that puzzle. I loved her four P's of the puzzle, purpose, prevention, pre-distribution, and people power. We'll see you next time on The Remakers.